to get the Crime Writers on After Show right now, go to patreon.com slash partners in crime media. I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and this is Crime Writers On. Crime Writers On is the original true crime review podcast that digs into true crime, pop culture, other podcasts. And on this episode, a mild-mannered British couple come to the attention of police after a pair of bodies are found buried in a garden. We'll talk about the HBO Max series, Landscapers. Joining me to get that done and more is true crime author, TV journalist, host of These Are Their Stories podcast, A Love of My Life, my husband, Kevin Flint. Hello, Kevin. Hello, Rebecca. And also with us is private investigator, certified pet detective, resident cat lady, and author of Dead on Deadline, Laura Bricker. Hello, Laura. Hello, Rebecca. And at the time of this taping, we've got three days to see if Dead on Deadline holds the top spot in Exeter at Water Street Bookstore for 2021. Cannot wait to find that out. And finally, (laughs) our captain of all things cynical, the author of the City Trilogy of Novels, the host of the Strange Arrivals podcast, and our very own Deep Dive Book Club podcast, Toby Ball. Hello, Toby. Hello, Rebecca. Now, Kevin, you may have noticed in the intro, I only introduced one podcast review. Why is that? Uh, because you've gotten lazy. <laughs> Is that why? No, it means we're going to have another podcast out on Thursday. If you haven't been following along to the messages we've been leaving in our most recent podcasts, we're going to be doing two shows every week. So on Monday, we've got this review. We'll be back out on Thursday with a review of Lost Hills Season 2. So this is our first week of having two podcasts in the same week. But not our last. Are you tired already? I'm... <laughs> I'm totally exhausted. Yeah? I'm exhausted by you. Are we going to have enough outtakes to populate two podcasts? Does it matter? Ooh. It does. The it outtakes does. are like bonuses. No, the outtakes- A lot of people don't even know there are outtakes at the end of the show. Oh my God. If you've been listening to our show all this time, and you didn't know that after the credits is the best part of the whole show, which is the outtakes They're like, the I show. understand the credits. No, they miss I got out. your outtake. Do you know what I did today? Just for the three of you. I fired up the tractor. I pulled it out of the garage. I drove to the wood pile with the bucket and I smashed the wood pile apart, frozen, to bring some wood up so that when the three of you come to my house, you can be cozy and warm. Oh, that's not just for us. That's not an outtake. That's amazing. We're excited. Laura Bricker, wood buster. <laughs> wood buster. I was like, you know what? I'm having some friends over, including yourselves. And I was like, you know what? We need a cozy fire because that is New Hampshire AF and the woodpile may be frozen, but I'm going to take the tractor bucket and smash it apart. And it was very satisfying. I cannot wait. I cannot wait yep. to see you in person uh, tomorrow evening in real time, Laura Brick. It's going to be very yep. exciting. There are so many listeners in like Florida who cannot relate. Not in any way. <laughs> nor, nor, nor can they relate to the fact that we had like the pest service company come over today and like have to walk around our house and do the quote all clear. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> oh. Wow. Oh, Kevin, want to note about that? Yeah. The pest service people, they have a new rule. What's that? You have to lock your dogs up in a room because there have been so many dog attacks of the oh, pest wow. service people lately. Yes. Yeah. So while they're looking for rats and mice and earwigs that are going to bite them, you have to put your own animals in other rooms that they won't get bitten. It's that's, very, a, that's a good plan. Yeah, Rural life, rural life. Okay, well, I think we should go ahead, speaking of rural life, and uh, do our first review of this evening, which is very much about rural life. You mean life. our only review of this evening. That's right, in its own way. Okay? Okay. Let's get it done. You see, I've, I've, I've done something rather silly. 
And it might sound bad, it might sound very bad even, but it's not what it seems. Not at all, it's not what it seems, and um, just needs a little bit of clearing up, that's all, so. Christopher and Susan Edwards seem to be an ordinary British couple living a quiet life in France. But a plea for money results in a tip for the police. Susan's parents did not move from the city and sell their home a decade ago. They were killed and their bodies were buried in the garden. I looked out my window and I saw Chris digging a hole in the Wycherley's garden. Quite a deep hole, very deep, in fact. Now, he was probably just planting those rhododendrons that you'd seen around at Danny's, but uh, we joked about it, didn't we? Because he said he's probably burying his (laughs) in-laws. The mild-mannered couple returned to the UK to explain what happened. Saying he has nothing to hide, Christopher speaks freely with investigators, while Susan and her solicitor try to fight back against the evidence mounting against the couple. Susan, are these your words? Does that reading accurately reflect the content of your statement? No comment. Okay, Susan, if I go to the end of the statement, this your signature? No comment. It's okay, Susan. Oh, sorry, yes, that's my signature. Sorry. Oscar Award winner Olivia Coleman and David Thewlis star in HBO Max's Landscapers, a dramatized version of the domestic crime that shocked England. The four-part series combines police procedural, psychological drama, and surrealism to recount a strange crime and a stranger love story. Spoiler alert, we are going to be talking about plot points from Landscapers. So if you want to remain spoiler-free, go to the estimated time code in our show notes to hear our thumbs-up or thumbs-down review. Now, Toby, this is a very surrealist show. Susan, the main character in the show, perceives the world through old films, something we get a nod about at the beginning when we see her purchasing uh, a film poster. So we should just say right off, this is very much the frame of this series. How do you think that is handled? Because let's face it, it's kind of weird. Yeah, I was a little disappointed in all of that. Um, like there's a handful, what, like maybe a dozen scenes where I guess you're supposed to be kind of getting a sense of like what, how she's perceiving things. And you basically cut away to these scenes shot like they're old movies, but involving her. And I think it's supposed to be commenting on the plot as it's going forward, but I don't know. They didn't, they didn't really do it for me. They're not very well integrated into the story. Like, I think there've been times when we've seen things where, sort of the surreal scenes seem to flow naturally from uh, what we're watching in sort of like the quote unquote real world. And in this case, it's like scene stops, surreal scene, surreal scene stops back to reality. I guess it hints a little bit at her frame of mind. I thought there had been a way to make it more clear how kind of confused she is. And like, she kind of confuses what's going on around her with sort of these tropes and assumptions she gets from these old movies. And I didn't think that came across as well as it could have. Kevin, I know that you have some thoughts about this because there's a lot of embellishment here with these scenes, right? Mm -hmm. And it, it kind of accelerates as the show continues. The first episode is much straighter than the next three in terms of like they're in Paris. Yeah, He's looking yeah. for that job. It's just sort of sad. And the first episode, I think she comes off as just more straight unhinged maybe more controlling, maybe a little scarier. And then these scenes sort of like unfold and become more accelerated as the show continues. It becomes sort of like more and more deranged in some ways. What do you think about that? 
Wait, about the first episode or about? No, just sort of about all these embellishments of all these surrealistic scenes. Well, you know, I just let's talk about the inclusion of them. I'm wondering whether or not they thought there was enough of a crime story here to carry four episodes. Um, you know, you, you don't have to go full on Lifetime movie of the week to fill it up. But were they just so enamored with sort of these these subtextual themes? And the symbolism that you could be could draw out from their motivations and their life stories, that that's what they wanted to explore. I, I I don't know. By the way, they start off the whole show with a card that tells you the ending. It starts off by telling you that Susan and Christopher were convicted minimum 25 years to life. So, okay, well, what's the rest to watch about? Yeah. And then it also starts off immediately with this scene where we hear the director call action and call for the rain. Action, rain! There's so much breaking of the fourth wall in this way that I'm trying to figure out, okay, it's making a statement. It's going to be really different, and I think it starts off by saying something like, this is a true story, and then the word true disappears or something like that. I mean, they're really trying to make a statement that this is going to be an artistic tour de force telling a crime story. Now, Laura, you sent me a note that I agree with. You said it works for you. Tell me why. You know why I think this works for me? Because we have watched so many true crime documentaries and so many docudramas based on true crime stories. And I feel like this did something in a totally unique way. And in a way that we have not seen done before. And in terms of the way that it worked for me, I think it humanized these people in a way, you know, both of the characters, both the husband and the wife in this story, in a way that maybe they don't necessarily deserve our sympathy and our empathy, but it put them into their own, I'm going to call their vortex. It put them into like their vortex yeah. of their like strange fantasy world they were living in. But I really felt like I had a window into the way that they thought and the way that they lived and the way, you know, that Olivia Coleman's character was basically living her life like she was in an old movie and the way that her husband went along with her. And, you know, it wasn't perfect, but like we see so many things that are done the same way over and over. And for me, this worked for me because it was just quirky and artistic and really out of the box. And there were times I had to be like, what's going on here? But at the same time, oh, this is kind of interesting. This is a new way of framing something that we haven't seen done before. And and for that, I thought it was really interesting. Here's why I really liked it. I liked it for two reasons. One is that it kept me away from looking at my phone, right? Because <laughs> I didn't know what the fuck was going to happen next. So many weird things happened. And, you know, aside from like the little weird things that would happen where you'd suddenly see like it, the rain and then it would stop raining and it was clear that it was like cinematic and then black and white and then color. The scene that really popped me out and then I was like okay you could not look at your phone anymore 
was the scene where they showed like the building of the sets for the actual thing that we're watching. Oh, and, isn't that so cool? Oh my God, it was trippy as hell. You mean like at the credits at the end? Of like, it was, like, no, it was like episode three or episode the end of episode two where they were actually I running loved... from set to set yes. while they were showing yes. the reconstruction of the crime. Oh, and, oh, the crime, yeah, yeah. Yes, well, and then it was- They it, pull out of the interrogation room and walk insane. the set. It was insane. You two, this way. Where are you going? What's happening? Um, so I'll bring the camera, Emma. No, it's okay, Paul, leave it. Where are you going? Susan. Chop, chop. You don't have to go with them. You can come back, Susan. No. Right, come on. Excuse me. And I was like, okay, well, this is like the most insane thing I've ever seen. Where we're, we're, we're first, I what I think we're seeing is like the real photographs of the real places. I'm like, ooh, that's cool. That's like the real house. I'm like, wait, no, it's not. It's the set of the house that they built. And it just, so first of all, it made me, it made me realize early on that I had to pay attention because I might miss something trippy and weird. So I loved it for that reason because I was like, this is fucking weird. I don't want to miss any of the weirdness of it. The other reason I loved it was kind of meta. Because we watch stuff like this all the time, and it is very easy to see a story where people kill their parents for money because they were abused for some reason, right? We see stuff like this, like the house at uh, White Hill Farm, White Hall Farm. What was that uh, other scripted series called that we watched? Murders at the Murders White at House White Farm. House Farm. Yeah, we watch scripted series like that all the time, or we watch series that are based on true crimes all the time, and. They try to put us in the head of people and they, and they try to show us their motivations and they try to like make us feel the way people felt or this. They were like, fuck that. We're not going to try to like in any realistic way put you in the heads of these people. We're just going to do something completely bizarre in this fantastical way and do this like complete like stage production. Let's just imagine that it was like this. I feel like I was watching a play, like a, a TV show that was a play mm-hmm. of this inner life of these people. It was fucking crazy. And only because I've never seen anything like it before, that's why it worked for yeah. me. Yeah. I mean, is that is that is that a good enough reason that it worked for me? No, it it is because it was it was super unique. Yeah. Not only is it done in a different way, but you have two main characters. Um, you know, Olivia Coleman, who is fantastic in this because like the nuances in her expressions and the way that she portrays this sort of dowdy fantasy living character housewife is just it's tremendous and then we have you know professor lupin i can't remember his real name but you know he was in harry potter as professor David lupin as her husband yeah Yes. You know, it wouldn't have worked if we didn't have people in these two main roles that were as good as they were but then you're doing something different, like you said, Rebecca. And you've got this like lead investigator who, when she starts questioning, all of a sudden you go into this like, zoop, now we're into the scene that she's questioning. And and then they took it a step further when she was like walking around with them at that one scene where she's like, no, no, no. And like that was, this, I think, the scene you're referencing where they like walk across the set into the fake bedroom with the dead parents. And I just was like, this is, I have to applaud this for being so different, but it's just quirky and it's weird and it's interesting. And also it's taking me into the mind of all the people that are involved in this. Or an imagination of the mind. Yeah, into this imagination, into this like weird world of the people involved in this story. Whose imagination do you think the whole thing with the sets is? Well, that's the whole thing. Is it's the artistic imagination of whoever made this thing, right? Well, so- so that's kind of, I mean, it's not really a criticism, but it's sort of, you know, there's a couple of different things going on. One is like trying to get you inside 
uh, Susan's head and to a lesser extent, Chris's head with this old movie stuff. And then there's like another group of things that are, it's not entirely clear what the point is. Like I've definitely seen movies before where they're trying to show, be like, this is a movie. This isn't real. So I'm going to show you the set and I'm going to show you how this is all just like kind of two dimensional and it's not real. So I've seen that kind of stuff before. So I felt like that scene kind of pulled us out of the most effective sort of actual crime procedural part of the series, which was the questioning. Oh, the interrogation scenes, yeah. And this is, this is the truth, you have to believe me. And he had a collection in a cabinet and we got rid of them all because we didn't like having them in the house and we got rid of everything. You have to believe me, please. In truth, it no longer matters what I believe. We're going to stop there, Susan. Thank you. I just thought those were so, so well done. And I don't know if they were working off transcripts or what, but they remind me a little bit more of the Prime Suspect uh, shows from way back when, as opposed to Criminal when we were watching those. And it seemed like there was always like, oh, we just got a clue from somewhere else that we can use to like, you know, turn the screws on this guy and show he's lying. Whereas this, it was more sort of psychological manipulation. It was Chris's arrogance that he thought he'd be able to kind of stonewall people or explain things away or be rational in the face of like a professional interrogation. So I just found it kind of frustrating. There's another scene where there's a, where it's Chris with the guns and he's, he's like sort of in this weird field, I guess he's going to shoot these cans and there are these random people, sort of spooky people (laughs) who are watching him do it. Yeah. And then like 15 minutes later, there's a street scene and one of those guys is on the street. It was like Hodorowsky's dude, right? You know who those guys were? Those extras (laughs) ended up being the jurors at the end. They were in the bar Oh, is that what it was? Yeah, I was like, why? why Because they were- They were watching. Yeah, the weird beard. They they looked distinctive, right? They they, they sort of called up to themselves as not just being extras. It was like a Hodorowsky movie. I feel like I was watching one of those weird movies from the Hodorowsky's (laughs) dude documentary. Do you ever meet someone who seems kind of off? Whether it's a creepy neighbor or random phone number that keeps calling you, Truthfinder has you covered. You can search for people by name, address, phone number, email, and more. Truthfinder can be especially helpful for running confidential background checks on anyone you're planning to meet from online dating apps. Go to truthfinder.com podcasts for a special offer. That's truthfinder.com podcasts to access your special offer today. All right, so Kevin, let's take a quick break for the business section. Okay, business section. What do we got going on in our... Hey, it's that same music. Yeah, it is. So what do we got going on in our Patreon right now, Kevin? Hey, just want to let you know that right now in Patreon, still on Mondays, we have the Crime Writers on After Show. All right. And this time we're going to be talking about resolutions for 2022. Ugh, really? I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. No, resolutions are important. When we ran it by, you're like, that's a great idea. No, it was my idea, actually. I know it was your idea. No, I'm not saying, oh, like, that's a terrible idea. I'm saying, like, oh, like, resolutions, stuff we have to stick to. Okay, all right, all right. Stuff we're going to have to watch, stuff we're going to have to stick to. I know a resolution I'm going to give you. What's that? I'll tell you later. So, (laughs) I also want to let you know that uh, on Patreon later this week, on Thursday, Toby's going to be recording the latest edition of Toby's Deep Dive Book Club podcast. Mm. It's got an all-star panel. Toby, remind us of the book and who's going to be on the show. Uh, the book is A Line to Kill by Anthony Horowitz, and it will be featuring a discussion with our very own Rebecca Lavoie, Ooh. who you may all may know, uh, Shirley mm-hmm. Lairo, um, yeah. and Janet Varney. 
Wow. Oh, Holy so, shit. Good cast. And a, and a different time than usual, it's going to be at 7 p.m. Eastern time, so we can get it in before we record Crime Writers On next week. He said get it in. Yeah. So if you support us at the Crime Writers On Nation sponsor level, yeah. you can watch the live recording. You can even take part by throwing in questions in the chat or jumping on the screen and being part of the book club and uh otherwise uh you can sit around and wait the following week for that podcast to come out and we can talk about anthony horowitz's line to kill anthony horowitz of course is one of my favorite authors so i'm really fucking psyched about this conversation great all right so kevin that's really exciting that that's coming up in our patreon i guess and thus ends the business section thus ends the business section. thus ends the business section let's go back to our conversation let's do it But this whole thing, though, Toby, it hinges on the performances, right? Because Coleman and Thulis, they're both, like, resplendently good in this. Like, this would be fucking terrible. Like, we wouldn't even be talking about it. If 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 they weren't so good in this, we would just be like, what the fuck? We wouldn't even be, like, talking about it, right? Yeah. And I, those are both, like, kind of award winners, uh, as far as I'm concerned. I, I think they were very convincing in parts that I think were tough. And they were trying to portray, you know, a pretty complicated relationship where you have one woman who needs saving and this other guy who's sort of like a serial uh, failed saver of lost people. Mm -hmm. But to see how, despite that being kind of the relationship, the power actually sort of lies with the person who needs to be saved rather than the person who's trying to be the savior. I I thought all that stuff was pretty interesting. So in, in some ways I felt like usually I like weird stuff. But it seemed like there was enough here, and the acting performances were good enough. I mean, even the even the other actors I thought were were really strong. I thought the whole the whole thing was really strong as far as the acting went. But then you get pulled out of it again and again, and then the final episode, the big thing with like the shootout on the it was so weird on the <laughs> hill or whatever. I, I love like, that part. For the love of God, what is going on here? And uh, I don't I don't know. At that point, I was like, you know what, this is taking entirely too long for me. Like, make your point. Uh, make your point. Let's go on with our lives. No, you know what it was, Toby? All I could think during that part is like, I'm watching it. I'm like, oh my God, this is like Westworld. Oh, that town was totally the set from Westworld. I'm like, HBO yeah. is going to use the shit yes. out of this no, set. No, they're probably all in Britain. Well, that, no. that was someplace. Oh. That, that did not look really great. Uh, Listen, Arizona country or something like, like that. There's like one That's, place in New Mexico where they film all that shit, Kevin. It you is, think in COVID yeah. they flew that entire 100%. British crew to Arizona <laughs> totally. to shoot that? Go ahead, Laura. Oh, no, I, I loved, I you know, I was like, wait, what's going on here? And then I was like, oh, wait a minute. I like this. Again, I'm going to say I like it because it's new and it's different and it's something we haven't seen before. But also I could totally get it because I was like, oh, wait, we're now in her reality, which is where her husband has been living for this whole time because clearly her husband knew that half of the fantasies that she was like uh, spinning were not true. Like, am I the only one who's like really sad that like Gerard Depardieu was not actually their pen pal? You, did I, you think he I, was? <laughs> well, I did at the beginning. Oh, and then I was like, no. and then I was like, oh, this is so sad. But like, you know, but I was like, no, this is, this is like, it was like the perfect final. First of all, I love the female detective, uh, DC Lansing. And and by the way, she looked super badass in her cowboy hat when she was out there in the woods during the <laughs> shootout. But I think it was like the final setup to just show you how Olivia Coleman's character where she was mentally, you know, she was living in her wild Western movie. She's spending all her money on Western 
uh, movie paraphernalia and, and films and charging things, even though they're living in France with no money. And that final scene was like the like last hurrah of her fantasy in a way. Hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like, okay, this is totally bullshit, but we're going to ride the wave and uh, load this dude and load these people in our little wagon and go out in the woods for a shootout. <laughs> I don't know. I just I just found it sort of kind of quirky. Kevin, the, the Western scene was the climax of all this surrealism stuff, right? What did you think yeah. about that? Well, I mean, <laughs> they went full on uh, dream sequence there. But I mean, it, it keeps playing into this sort of recurring theme where Susan needs a hero to save her. And this is what she's always needed. And whereas she has been a fan of Westerns, she sees her husband as her savior, her Gary Cooper. And then kind of literally, you know, even the the white haired wig that they put uh, Christopher in that he, you know, dramatically pulls off at the end to just further show you that this is, you know, we're going to break the fourth wall. It's it's just a uh, another way of sort of telling a parallel story to the real story. Was there an investigation kind of like an Old West posse in a way you could look at it like that where, you know, instead of leaving the, you know, the the phone message that apparently in the Western uh, reimagining of this, the note explaining the murder was left uh, on the stepmother's uh, door frame with a big knife in it that he takes to the sheriff. So, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of that, you know, that sort of like plays out like that, but it is sort of the ultimate in sort of bringing together all of this symbolism and all the surrealism. We're going to now, in her head, in Susan's head, while all this is going on, and by the way, it's really interesting how they switched the black and white and the color. Yep. So instead of the real world, the trial being the thing that's in color and the fantasy being in black and white, it's flipped. Yeah. So that... You know, the fantasy world is the vibrant thing like for Susan. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, and, and just in this episode, you know? Yeah. So, Kevin, I would like to flip from talking about the surreal portion of the series to talking about some of the more grounded parts of the series. Mm-hmm. So this is in many ways, I think what it's trying to drive home is that this is a love story, as perverted and weird as yeah. that might be. Um, do you think it is successful as a love story? Hmm. You know what? I guess in a way it is because it, it really, I mean, it, it's really more of a study of a relationship as opposed to a study of a crime. Because hmm. think about it, in the end, we don't even really know what happened. They don't bother answering the question of, so did she kill him and then come back a week later? Or did he kill the family? Or, like, they don't even sort of like try to give us a clear answer to that. It's more about the two of them together in their weird relationship. And he is totally devoted to her. And she is like seeming like she needs somebody to uh, to lean on. They kept using the word fragile to describe the character. And that came up until she was on the stand and she said, I'm not fragile, I'm broken. Hmm. Meaning like, you, you can't break me, I'm already broken, hmm. right? And so it just goes to show that You know, he is willing to do whatever it takes to help her and comfort her. It sort of implied that, yeah, he he would be willing to kill her parents as an act of love just because. And, you know, she'd be doing this whole facade with sending letters as Gerard Depardieu. And it's just they have a a strange codependent relationship that uh, they'd like to explore. 
She should have consulted with Helen and Olga and just gotten the stamp instead of having to like work all that time on the, Gerard, on the signature of Gerard Depardieu, you know? Toby, I didn't think it was going in that direction. I thought starting the uh, show that it was going in the direction of, you know, the more typical sort of trope of like crazy woman, you know, manipulating the husband and, and drawing him into, you know, sort of a criminal act. Because the first episode seemed to be setting it up that way. We see this sort of sad sack guy that she lured him to Paris because of her sort of Francophile obsession. He's at this job interview where he like can't even answer a question <laughs> because he doesn't speak French. And it's like incredibly sad. She's like spending all this money that they don't have. Like, I did not see it going in this direction of this like devotional love story where at the end, like even her lawyer is like, I want a little bit of what you guys have. I was very surprised. That's the tack that the story took. What about you? Yeah, I mean, I'd, I guess I was a little surprised. You know, I, I would assume that Olivia Coleman wouldn't take a script that would be that kind of like woman forces man into committing horrible crime. I mean, that's kind of my frustration with the surreal stuff, which I, I didn't think was that great is that the rest of it I thought was really strong, like the just sort of typical uh, straight ahead movie stuff. I thought they doled out that information well. I think there was a sort of good rhythm to your starting to understand more and more about how their relationship works. You sort of start off with thinking that Chris is taking care of Susan, but that she's she's very demanding of him. And you don't you don't quite realize how sort of symbiotic that relationship is and what each person needs from the other one and where the actual power lies and why it lies in that way. It's it's not really the same thing that you see if you're initially thinking, oh my God, he's going to have to do something because his wife is spending all this money that they don't have. Like that's not what it's about, right? Mm, yep. if, if he did something, it was more about his sort of need to to save somebody and she needs to be saved. And it's that dynamic and that, you know, that's it's coming from both of them. And I think when you separate them, you know, the dynamic's not quite there, right? It's it's like sort of the classic thing where the, you, you takes both sides of that relationship to create this sort of volatile thing. Yep. All right. So I want to talk a little bit about uh, where Susan's attorney comes into play, because he's a really interesting character. He's listed in the credits as Douglas Hylton, played by Deepo Ola. Uh, Kevin, what do you think of his performance in the series? I, I like this performance. Susan has a uh, always sort of has a protector around her. He does a good job, kind of understated. It's funny though when we get to like the whole Western symbolism scene that he's portrayed as, you know, this guy watching from a distance, a distant protector, mm. quite literally. But uh, he played a nice—I don't want to say a foil, but a. a a, a nice supporting role, supporting Susan's character. If it makes you feel any better, I have, I've, I've been to prison. Yeah, I know, but it's true. And, and okay, it was when I was younger, uh, silly stuff, uh, getting into fights and so on, but, but look, I had my mum and I had my girl, the same way you have Chris. And now here I am. Look, it's, it's, Laura, what did you think about the fact that like she had this awesome attorney? Who's sitting next to her in all of the scenes, like, no comment, no comment, no comment. No comment. And like, meanwhile, Christopher is just like, 
spilling all of his stuff blah, 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 in the blah. other room. I mean, I was just, I find myself fast. I'm always fascinated, by the way, uh, whenever we watch a British like procedural and just how different the criminal justice system is there, how they like show their hand with their evidence, how they don't lie to suspects, how, you know, it's just, just so completely different. And to me, like in many yeah. ways, more ethical, but like how they were able to play the two of them against each other again, like Toby said, I don't know how much of that is was based on transcripts or whatever. But what did you think about that dynamic, about about how that all worked with her having a great attorney and him not having any representation at all? I loved that that part. I mean, I always am interested, like you said, in this like British police procedural and how you don't have to say anything. But what if you don't say anything and you rely on a court, it's going to be used against you. And I, I always find it interesting, like the different way that they their version of what we would call the Miranda rights are totally different. And she had an attorney that was actually a a really good attorney. And then in the end, we see, you know, a scene where they have a real kind of heart to heart where she like fesses up about Gerard Depardieu. And I know I keep talking about him, but I'm like fixated on that because I'm like, why couldn't they really have been friends in real life? But uh, they weren't. Uh, They weren't friends in real life. And that came out. But I think the fact that she had a good attorney who was giving her good counsel and who was like a steady presence and you saw him as somebody that he felt like a real character to me as I was watching him because he was sincere, he was invested, but he was actually giving her competent legal advice. And then you see this sort of relationship between the two of them develop to the point that in that last episode where they're sitting in the cell and she's like, I'm going to tell you something I've never told anybody else. I'm like, oh, I love it when that happens. (laughs) I love it when I'm the person on the receiving end of that, by the way. Toby, just a question for you about the cops in the story. Cato Flynn is DC Lansing. One of the things we see in the interrogation scenes, of course, is her performance, which you noted before. But another thing that we see is all the other cops behind the mirror and their reactions sort of when things go well. Um, What did you think of like that sort of heightened portrayal of the way that cops are when things are going their way versus not going their way? It was one way of showing, I guess, the tension Hmm. of what was going on. And I don't know if they felt like they had to indicate. I don't know if maybe like some of the wins were sort of subtle enough that they felt like they had to accentuate like this is a big moment. Like when he I guess when he said when he admits that he had guns. Yeah. And then they're all like doing little dances and stuff in their room. I didn't know if I was like, oh, okay. So they're signaling that this is super important. And maybe they hadn't (laughs) felt like they hadn't put enough, you know, groundwork in that people would understand that. So they didn't bring an actual anvil to drop. But it was uh, the boss, I thought was kind of an amusing character. The guy with the mustache, I don't remember what his name is, but uh, he he was kind of funny to watch. He was sort of like the more cuddly version of the guy from, uh, the murders at White House Farm, that yeah. little crazy like Welsh guy or whatever. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So knowing what we know now, I mean, let's just assume that this hyper surreal, weird, fictional version of the show is actually presenting all of the facts of the case as the jury got them, right? Mm-hmm. I'm just curious. Let's just take all the surreal Western Gary Cooper, you know, Westworld shit out of it. What do you guys think happened here? Like, let's just assume the facts of the case are as we got them. Laura, do you think that uh, Christopher and Susan did this together? Do you think she did it? Do you think mom shot dad? Do you think they were actually watching the uh, Eurovision competition together and didn't notice the smell? You think this was a premeditated murder? Like, thoughts? 
Um, yeah, no, there's no way they didn't notice the smell in that little tiny British house. I go with the last scenario, which is that Chris shot both of the parents and then they hauled him out in the garden and they buried him. I don't think that Olivia Coleman's character had the ability. Like, I mean, he said she doesn't like guns. I just don't think she had the ability to go through with it. I think he did it. They did it together. They buried them. And then they came up with this whole little convoluted cover story together. And, you know, I think that the character of Chris was portrayed in a way that I really felt like I got the sense of how he bought into her fantasy world and how he sort of played along with it in a way because that was the world that she lived in and he loved her and that was their relationship and that was their dynamic. And so... Yeah, no, there's no way they weren't smelling those bodies. Listen, I can smell a mouse in the wall in my house down two floors. They could smell two dead people. Hmm. Toby, what do you think? What do you think happened here? Given what you know from this weird, trippy uh, series, not, of course, in real life because you weren't a member of the jury. That's true. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I agree with Laura. I mean, it seems like the most, based on this, the most obvious thing is that uh, Chris did it and they were both there and then they buried the bodies. I think like something we're going to discuss on Thursday, like when you come up with these sort of detailed stories to potentially cover your tracks, like all the details have to be right. And if you're making up a detailed story and some of the details that you made up just don't really fit, like that's a problem. So like the shell casing thing, again, that's just sort of, you know, to me that seemed like a damning piece of evidence. It's like, yeah, you just made that shit up. Like that didn't actually happen. And I could see being her lawyer and being like, well, you know, it's confusing and it was very distressing and all this stuff. And, and she got confused. But that to me seems like the kind of thing that when you're trying to create like a strong visual of a story that you're trying to get away with, like that's the kind of stuff you put in there and you don't realize that it doesn't make sense until somebody points it out to you when it's too late. Yeah. Kevin? Yeah, I believe it was that... Uh... Chris did the shooting. I don't think Susan was even in the room, but it was certainly her idea. And they dragged the bodies down, buried them, and then had fish and chips. Totally agree. Agree with all of you guys. I think the idea to do the whole week later thing, I think they shot them. I do think they went back a week later to bury the bodies, which is why the whole two week thing happened. I think that's why I don't even think that's the first. Well, it doesn't Why then talk about the two weeks thing? I just think that that I think there's a weird week. Time lapse thing. I don't know. Who knows? Anyway, I think we should do what we do. Let's let our listeners know. Should they check out Landscapers? It's on HBO and HBO Max. Laura Bricker, what do you think? Thumbs up or thumbs down for Landscapers? You know, I'm going thumbs up on Landscapers. I think, yeah, there's issues with it that you can point out. But what I loved about this is we took a traditional true crime real story and they fictionalized it and made it into sort of a cinematic experience in a way that we have not seen done before. And, you know, we watch so much true crime for this podcast. And after a while, it all sort of, I hate to say it, this sounds horrible, blends together. So it's really refreshing when we see a totally different out of the box take on a traditional true crime story. And in this case, what I think elevated it for me is that we have the performances of the two main actors in this. We have Olivia Coleman. We have the guy who's Lupin and Harry Potter, whose name I can't remember. David, David Lewis. Lewis. <laughs> you could write it down before the podcast, you know, Laura. <laughs> I'm just going to call him Lupin. I'm okay. sorry. I call okay. him Lupin. So we have 
these performances by these two, you know, people that really elevate things in a way that I think make this whole different approach work that wouldn't have worked if we had had lesser actors and actresses involved in this. And yeah, it might not be for everyone, but I thought, hey, you know what? This is cool. They're trying something totally different. I had to kind of get behind it a little bit. The lead detective, DCI Lansing, she was played so well. And I just thought this was cool. It was different. It was out of the box. It reminded me a little of Westworld. It reminded me a little of Perry Mason. It reminded me a little of like, it was all over the place, but I thought it wasn't perfect, but I thought it was interesting and that it was bringing sort of a fresh take on a traditional true crime show. Toby Ball. First of all, there's almost no landscaping in this thing. So I don't even know where to go with that. Um, I, I guess I, I'd be 100% for a show or movie that used like kind of artistic means of showing sort of the, the artificial nature of trials and the way you try and create narratives from, from these different facts at trials and, and how it's not... You know, it's competing stories and it, it's not necessarily trying to paint a picture of the truth and all that stuff. I would 100% be interested in watching something like that if it's really well done. And I and I, and I feel like they kind of hinted it sometimes here. This to me doesn't seem like the case that really lends itself to that kind of thing. And then I thought some of the other surreal stuff, again, it seemed too disconnected from the other parts of the action. It didn't feel like fully integrated. But beyond that, I mean, I think, I mean, the, the acting in this is, is so good. And I think the writing for the traditional stuff, the way the the relationship between Chris and Susan is portrayed is really sort of top notch. So I've got, you know, I've got kind of mixed feelings about it. I'll, I'll give it a thumbs up. I think it could have been a really big thumbs up uh, if a few major decisions had made made a little differently. But, you know, the stuff that's good in it is really, really, really good. And the acting is is great as well. So moderate thumbs up. Kevin Flynn. I'm going to go thumbs sideways. There's a lot of stuff in this that I I admire. The artistic bravery to do something a little uh, different and to, you know, go in hard on the symbolism and sort of pulling back the, the curtain or, as they say in TV, breaking the fourth wall to get somebody in to tell a story. In the end, I just thought these are two really good performances Wasted on a really trippy crime story. So it just didn't work for me. It's not bad. I'm not going to say thumbs down, but I can't quite tell people they need to go back and binge this. Hmm. Yeah, I'm going to give it a thumbs up. I really freaking like this show, even though the entire time I watched it, I was like, what the fuck am I watching? Um, <laughs> which is a really weird way to give it a thumbs up. Um, it is really weird and like... I cannot stress how weird it is. Uh, I'm not sure that everybody who's listening to this podcast is going to like it. I can just say that I really liked it. I'm just going to leave it there. I really liked it. Thumbs up for me for landscapers. Now it's time for my favorite part of the podcast, a little something I like to call the crime, crime of, of the week. The week. A 10-year-old girl looking for something to do on a rainy day asked Alexa for a, quote, challenge to do. So the Amazon voice assistant told her to touch a penny to a half-inserted electrical plug. According to the BBC, the request prompted the Echo speaker to retrieve a popular answer from the internet. It happened to be the so-called penny challenge, the latest craze on TikTok. Touching a metal coin to an exposed outlet obviously can cause shocks, 
fire damage, or serious injury. The girl said she was smart enough to not take Alexa's advice. Mom went to Twitter to complain. Amazon tells the BBC that they've updated the software so the speaker doesn't recommend that activity in the future. Panel, what is some other bad advice from Alexa? Laura Bricker, what do you think? Well, Alexa and I have kind of a love-hate relationship. I'm just going to say that. Sometimes I have to yell at Alexa. Alexa, why aren't you listening to me? Alexa, why aren't you doing what I say? I would say don't take cooking advice from Alexa. That's what I'm going to say. Alexa, how should I cook this? No. No, no, no. Never? No. Because really, it's the Russians telling you how to cook things. (laughs) (laughs) Toby, what do you think is some other bad advice that you could get from Alexa? Uh, To to find a Coke and and use it to watch down those Pop Rocks. Uh, Oh, Kevin, what do you think? uh, Hey, Alexa, should I start selling LuLaRoe? Alexa, should I go put my tongue on that frozen pole? No flick, you should not. (laughs) All right, we should probably end it on that note. Uh, Laura Bricker, if folks want to follow you on Twitter and give you better cooking advice than Alexa has been giving you, how can they find you on Twitter to do so? Uh, They can find me at Laura Bricker. And Toby Ball, folks want to reach out to you to, you know, say hi. How can they find you on Twitter? At Toby Ball NH. And Kevin Flynn, if folks want to reach out to you to tell you how much they like our new format of our show, how can they find you on Twitter? I'm at Kevin P. Flynn. And if you want to follow me on Twitter or Instagram, you can find me at Reb Lavoy. You can also follow the show on Twitter at Crime Writers On. And I encourage you to join our amazing community and our official Crime Writers On Facebook discussion group. We also have a regular old Facebook page, by the way. You can go there and find our group button to join the group. Support the show at patreon.com slash partners in crime media. You'll get the Crime Writers on After Show, Married with Podcast, Laura Bricker's Leave it to Bricker Podcast, and Toby Ball's Deep Dive Book Club Podcasts. Our theme song was composed and performed by Ty Gibbons. Our line editor is the very handsome Olivia Burdett. The executive producer of this program is Kevin Flynn. This show was recorded in the yoga loft above the bodega in Bay St. Louis, Mississippi studio, otherwise known as Studio C, the closet in our New Hampshire basement, where we read all of our letters from Gerard Depardieu. On behalf of all the crime writers, Depardieu. thanks so much for listening. We will catch you later. Yeah, Laura, we can't hear you. She's leaning into her mic as though we can hear her, though, which yeah. is so funny. Did like, you have so many edibles you can't work your in, machinery? She's leaning in, and she's covering her mouth. I see some dial on the back of her microphone is turned to zero. Oh, it's because I muted on the front of my microphone. Jesus Christ. <laughs> nice. Oh, no. Okay. Uh, Here I am. I'm like swearing. Way I'm like to diagnose things. that one. I think we should just go ahead and start recording our two podcasts, shall we? Yeah.